Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast on nursing in the family. I have chosen to cover five widely various topics related to family nursing while relating each to relational inquiry. All of the articles that have informed my discussion of these topics will be available in the references listed on the main page of the Nurse 2001 portfolio. So let's start with Indigenous peoples and tuberculosis in Canada. First, it is worth considering this disproportionate burden of disease through a post-colonial lens. Tuberculosis in Canada originates from colonial contact. At that time, tuberculosis was 20 times as likely to result in the death of an Aboriginal Prairie Canadian as a non-Aboriginal Prairie Canadian. For all Canadians, the treatment model was that of sanatoriums, with sick individuals taken from their communities to an institution where they could not infect others, but they could convalesce until cured through natural immunity as there were no vaccine or antibiotics. Convalescence might take months or years. Though Indigenous people were treated the same as non-Indigenous ones, the treatment was equal but not equitable. As with residential schools, such long separation from their communities often had detrimental impacts on Indigenous individuals' ability to speak their language, connectedness to their families, and general knowledge of their culture. The disproportionate burden of tuberculosis on Indigenous communities is not a historical phenomenon, but continues through to today, as part of sequelae from colonial power imbalance. There is strong evidence that the best vaccination strategy for the control of tuberculosis among Indigenous peoples in Canada is targeting high-incidence communities, though this is limited by the fact that target communities are small, and thus small changes in incidence can drift them in and out of inclusion from year to year. It is further limited by the fact that such vaccination strategy will invalidate some of the tuberculosis testing. An alternative strategy is approaching health behaviors that put Indigenous peoples at greater risk of tuberculosis, as well as at risk for greater severity. Some of these determinants include tobacco use, excessive drinking, overcrowded housing, and food insecurity. Again, these behavioral determinants are influenced by continuing power differentials between Indigenous people and the dominant culture. Overall, models show that any intervention on the social level will cost more than it saves in healthcare. But a combination of attacking tobacco use and food insecurity has the greatest potential to maximize health gains at a reasonable cost, helping to narrow the gap in healthcare outcomes for Indigenous people. Now, let's talk about neonatal abstinence syndrome. The condition occurs when an infant goes through withdrawal from a substance that they received in utero. This condition is growing in prevalence alongside the opioid epidemic that is affecting those who are and are not pregnant alike. In fact, the incidence of neonatal abstinence syndrome tripled between 2003 and 2014. With increased incidence is increased cost, including increased cost per patient. Some of this increase in cost may be accounted for by an increase in detection. It may alternately be attributable to better detection in infants with comorbidities, such as prematurity, that independently lengthen hospital stay. When dealing with an infant with neonatal abstinence syndrome, there is always the consideration of whether it is necessary to involve child welfare services. This condition alone does not warrant such involvement, but it is a risk factor for other harms, such as physical injury and neglect. Neglect is a very serious concern for new mothers dealing with active opioid use disorder, though the risk for neglect is very difficult to assess. Ethical inquiry asks, what value should be prioritized? 
involving social welfare values the physical well-being of the child and considers an outside authority as the best mode to achieve this, while not involving social services values the relationships, that of mother to child and of nurse to patient. The two priorities are not mutually exclusive and present an ethical dilemma. The fact that guidelines regarding when to contact child welfare are very subjective, relying on the judgment of the professional in question is a weakness. The process lacks standardization and puts professional in a moral dilemma with weak guidance to navigate. One solution to this dilemma is introducing child welfare early during pregnancy, a strategy that typically results in them being seen as more of a support and less of a punishment by mothers. I think this also reframes the involvement of social services for the nurse. It is not a choice that indicates judgment, but one that mitigates risk while preserving dignity. This also supports collaboration between the mother, the nurse, and child welfare services in deciding if and when additional intervention is needed. Including the mother in the process not only reduces some of the fear of child welfare, but also enables her to feel less scrutinized and therefore parent to the best of her ability reducing the likelihood of higher intensity intervention. Another way in which adults sometimes cope maladaptively is through eating disorders. With eating disorders in general, an estimated 15% of females and 8% of males have clinically significant behaviors. There is some gender difference in array of behaviors, with women exhibiting more regular binge eating and self-induced vomiting than men, but equal amounts of driven exercise, regular fasting, and regular laxative misuse. For most age groups sampled, women have worse eating disorder psychopathology than males, though Smith et al.'s study in 2020 did not include those aged 50 to 64 and found the effect to disappear beyond the age of 65. Another study found that of eating disorders in Canada, people experience bulimia the most, then anorexia. Though older women experience more anorexia than younger women, the overall pattern remains. Henriksen et al found that age had little effect on symptomatology or mental health outcomes, though what few effects were significant favored the experience of eating disorders improving with age. Ergo, there is weak but growing evidence that experience of eating disorders gets better with age. Unfortunately, due to the fact that these results are based on cross-sectional data, it is impossible at this time to parse whether these are age or cohort effects. The consideration of eating disorders in adults encourages us to remember that all nursing is family nursing. The psychopathology and eating disorders of depression and anxiety are well combated through family support. In all cases of serious physical and mental conditions, people recover better with better support. Support comes from family, genetic or chosen. So we've talked about adults. What about youth? My next topic is mental health in trans youth undergoing transition. It was found by Veal et al. that 14 to 18 year old trans youth show mental health that is about one standard deviation worse than that of cisgender same aged peers and are at a fivefold increased risk of having clinically significant disorders. They are also five times as likely to have suicidal thoughts. Shifting older, the situation is even worse for 19 to 25 year old trans folks showing two standard deviations worse outcomes on mental health scores and 16 times the likelihood of having attempted suicide in the past year as compared to same-aged peers. In comparison to binary trans youth, non-binary youth, 
tended to have even worse overall mental health and a higher incidence of self-harm. These mental health disparities are greater than those experienced by gay, lesbian, and bisexual youth. A further note, there was little general mental health difference found between the two age groups, suggesting that it does not necessarily get better after high school, a well-disseminated false encouragement that ought not to be perpetuated. Among trans folks assigned female at birth, chest dysphoria is positively correlated with anxiety and depression. Chest dysphoria is separate from gender dysphoria and independently predicts mental health. Transgender clients are significantly more likely to self-refer to mental health services than are cisgender clients. Non-binary clients are also more likely to self-refer than are gender-conforming clients who are either cis or trans. In both cases, this could be related to feeling uncomfortable disclosing mental health concerns to a primary care provider. There's evidence that such disclosure can interfere with access to transition services. Good mental health care of trans youth requires all five ontological capacities, curiosity, competence, compassion, correspondence, and collaboration. First, curiosity enters into paying attention for signs that someone is trans and that they are having mental health struggles. The burden for seeking care currently resides with the recipient in this area with them having to come out as a member of first one group, then the other. Curiosity on the part of the nurse can help to mitigate this burden and provide care sooner. Second, this group requires competence. They are at a high risk for negative outcomes, including suicide, and need high quality intervention to reduce these risks. Next is compassion. Again, this is a high risk group who as individuals are very likely to face challenges to living authentically, including stigma, lack of needed social support, and internalized transphobia. As such, we as nurses can make a profound difference by showing them the compassion we hope they are eventually able to show themselves. Then there's correspondence, in which it is important for the nurse to be constantly in conversation with the research, learning how best to provide care to up-to-date standards. Finally, collaboration can greatly benefit these individuals. Each trans person is the expert on their own mental state and physical needs. The nurse can best provide care by collaborating with them on the development of an individualized care plan and implementation thereof. We have discussed mental health and trans youth. Now, I'd lastly like to focus on the worst mental health outcome, suicide, and intervention for it via phone line. There are plans for Canada to have a national suicide prevention service by 2023, including a three-digit crisis number that will connect Canadians anywhere in the country with local trained responders. This is particularly relevant during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which the amount of Canadians reporting experiencing suicidal thoughts jumped from only 2.6% to 1 in 10. The phone line will provide, quote, a single access point to 24-7, 365 crisis support in English and French via phone, text, and online chat, end quote. There is good evidence that such phone lines reduce distress and help prevent suicide in the short term. There has long been the question of whether paid staff are better at helping suicidal callers than volunteers, with most research since the 1960s finding the reverse to be true, actually. Measures of call skills, including the administration of risk assessments, consistently favor volunteers, 
as do measures of call outcomes. An attempt to replicate these findings in Quebec found no significant difference between paid and volunteer distress line operators, possibly owing to the fact that no specific education is required for a paid position in Quebec. It was found in Quebec that all staff with over 140 hours of call experience had significantly better call outcomes than those with less experience. They had greater caller adherence to contracts and were less likely to see escalating suicidal risk in a call. The consideration of telephone intervention for suicide prevention brings to mind leadership. This is an intervention that is known to work, but is currently underutilized in Canada. The United States, for example, already has an international crisis number for suicide prevention, while Canada is aiming to have one by 2023. Nurses can exercise their leadership in utilizing the same techniques that are effective on phone lines in healthcare interactions with clients suffering from suicidal ideation, also raising awareness of effective telephone aid lines and even choosing to be part of the volunteer force that are most effective at running this service. I hope you learned something about tuberculosis in the Indigenous people in Canada, neonatal abstinence syndrome, eating disorders in adults, mental health in trans youth, or phone intervention in suicide prevention. Thanks so much for listening.